opportunity to ask questions. So without any further ado, I will start the, this is the second lecture in the series, and I uh, gave it the title, Don't Fix the Price of Gold. Now this uh, needs some explanation. Uh, most people who are in favor of a return to the gold standard suggest that the way to do it is to find the so-called equilibrium price of gold and fix it, dollar price of gold, and then make the dollar convertible into gold at that price. And of course most of them suggest that this will be probably a very high price, much higher than we have at present, around $1,400. Some people even talk about $14,000. I even heard as high as $50,000. But I think this discussion is completely ridiculous because there is simply no equilibrium price of gold. And if you assume there is and try to find one and try to enforce one, then it's like starting a civil war between creditors and debtors, because it is in the interest of the debtors to make the so-called fixed price of gold as low as possible and it's in the interest of the creditors to make the same so-called equilibrium price of gold as high as possible. And they are so wide apart that if anybody tries to enforce something in between, this will lead to a civil war and social peace will be lost and without cooperation of the creditors and debtors and without uh, a symbiosis whereby everybody can find his or her place in society to be useful and help the community to prosper is lost. So that's just a non-starter to talk about a fixed price of gold. So what I'm suggesting to you and I've been advocating that for the better part of 10 years is that as a transitional uh, period we should have a dual monetary system. In other words, leave the Fed, the Federal Reserve, and other central banks to give them enough rope to hang themselves because they will do ultimately anyhow but at the same time follow this letter and the spirit of the Constitution, I refer to the US Constitution, which established the mint as the instrument in the hands of the people to create money. And, the, and it's not the central bank which creates money according to the US Constitution, but it's the people. People will take their gold or their silver and have the right to convert it into the coin of the realm at no 
charge to themselves. If the gold, the quantity, and the quality, the purity of gold uh, meets the prescribed level. And that means that people can create money if they think that there is not enough money in circulation. On the other hand, if they think there's too much money in circulation, they have the right to take their gold coins to the uh, goldsmith, melt it down, and fashion it into jewelry, or export it, or hoard it, or do whatever they want, but withdraw it from circulation. This is the true meaning of a gold standard. And as a consequence, uh, the government is out of the money business. The only thing the government does is to establish a mint and run it at public expense. In other words, there is a cost involved in coining a bullion into uh, in, in uh, striking coins out of bullion, but this cost should be absorbed by the government the same way as the government absorbs the cost of uh, keeping the uh, uh, public roads in good repair. But once that's done, <coughs> the government is out of the picture and the people decide how much money there should be. So, uh, it's not a price-fixing scheme. If, if there's any price-fixing, it's not fixing the gold price in terms of paper, but it's fixing uh, the price of paper instrument in terms of gold. So the whole approach is quite different uh, in the plan which I suggest. So. That is the role of the people in the money process. At the same time, I would leave the Fed in business, except taking away the uh, uh, so-called legal tender protection of paper money, which is a coercive uh, instrument completely alien to the idea of basic freedoms, that is, the government is enforcing, people must use this, and if they don't, then the uh, police will get after them, and they'll be arrested and molested and uh, put out of business and uh, prosecuted and everything else. This is completely alien uh, idea. The legal tender is at the heart of the evil. It's really uh, something which we have to fight against. But other than that, the Fed is free to put uh, quantitative easing or design exit strategies and do all the foolish things they have been doing all this time to land us in, in this very difficult situation. Because people have a choice. People can use the paper money facility, which the Fed and the government puts 
uh, uh, disposable people, uh, but the Constitution gives them the right to take their gold or silver to the mint and have their own money and use it in trade or in production or in uh, uh, investing. And people have a choice. They can refuse the paper money, which under the present system they cannot because there's legal tender. So uh, this is a dual monetary system, at least for a time until people get used to it, people can make up their mind what they want, and if they want to go back to paper and it can be fixed, I don't believe it can, but I may be wrong, and then, then of course people will use paper money. And, uh, of course, the important thing is for people, and that's the reason why I don't believe that they will choose me, to protect their savings for several re purposes. One is to, uh, they have an, uh, a young or newborn child, and they start planning for their future, give them education, give them uh, various possibility to make a good start in life. So they need savings, and this savings should be safe and secure, because it will be probably uh, 15, 16, 17 years before the newborn child is ready for university education or higher education. And for that reason, people should have a reliable saving uh, outlet. And if they think, which I'm sure they won't, that paper money will give it to them, then that's their choice, that's their decision. But if they think that uh, they cannot trust paper promises, they have to have the gold, then they should have that choice too. And the second reason is the problem we all face, human beings. We are not immortal, we are going to die, and we all know it. And we know that as we get older, the aging process is a kind of curse. Our energy and resources keep diminishing as we get older, whereas the need for such things as medical attention, uh, buying medication and, and everything else, uh, is increasing. So unless we have savings, which we are in control, not the government or not somebody else, then we just have to have that. And under the present system, we don't. So that's, again, where gold comes in. If uh, we want to have meaningful savings for old age, we are not going to rely on old age security and all kinds of government schemes on unfunded, in most cases, because what the government does is collects taxes from the present working population and right away pays it out in the form of old age pension uh, 
to those who are who have reached the retirement age, uh, and this, of course, disregards the fact that the present workers get only empty promises because when they reach that age, then it's another set of people, the uh, young, the next generation, who will have to pay their pension. But they are not involved in the negotiating process. They are just being charged with a liability which they could refuse to accept when they become workers. They were left out. Some of them weren't, aren't even born yet, you see, who, is going, who are going to pay the pension of those who presently work and pay my pension. So this so-called unfunded system, pension system, is just a pipe dream of those planners in the government who have, haven't got the foggiest idea how this uh, system of cooperation and division of labor between the young generation and the old generation works. They haven't got the foggiest idea. They just say it's a matter of passing a law that you must pay social security contributions and that is all that is needed to fund the social security. You see, when uh, it was brought in in 1935 in the United States, then uh, there was, uh, some, according to some estimates, 70 workers who paid the pension of one retired person. Because there, there were very few relatively old people who could collect social security, eligible. And now, it's just the other way around. There are a handful of workers, probably not more than five or six, who will have to pay the pension of a hundred retired people, you see. And, 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 and it's, unthink it's un incredible that the planners didn't think about this problem, the demographic shift and how it would change, even without extending the uh, uh, limits of human life. I mean, the uh, average age was probably 60 and now it's more like 80. And it's still increasing, thanks to therapeutical advances and modern uh, medicine and various other factors. And general well-being, people are better fed, better uh, uh, taken care of. So life expect expectancy has expanded. That was completely left out of consideration when they brought this in. So, in other words, uh, people will need a reasonable, funded pension system in order to look ahead with, with, uh, without worry to the future, to their old age. So, this is 
the problem then. We have to have a monetary system. Now, if you want to go straight ahead with a gold standard, there are, un there are insurmountable difficulties in the way. And chances, and of course, there are so many enemies of the idea, and they have ample opportunity to sabotage uh, your plan of putting uh, society on a good, solid monetary base. So I, I just don't think this would succeed. It's a plan to discredit the gold standard because there and, and social peace is going to be sacrificed. And everybody who advocates the gold standard will look like a doctrinaire that they just believe in something that this is their mission. And, and the more realistic plan is that we have to have a dual, a transitionary uh, uh, period when this dual monetary system, allowing paper money to continue and get discredited, which in my opinion inevitably will do, and at the same time have the gold uh, coin standard where gold coins are actually in circulation, not piled up in the banks, but they are in the hands of the people and they have a choice. They can uh, hoard it, they can put it out as an investment, and they can spend it on consumption. And uh, it's up to them. And uh, this idea of gold hoarding being the boogeyman, that it won't work because people will just hoard gold, and this is crazy. This is not true at all. Some people will do it, but that is their right. After all, they worked. This gold coin came from somewhere. It's the fruits of their labor, uh, maybe with two hands or maybe with their uh, mind, but it is theirs. So they have every right to uh, do with it as they please. And to suggest that people will hoard, and uh, this will uh, withdraw liquidity and the production will seize up, and this is, this is just not true at all. And um, uh, we just have to have a system whereby uh, the decision is left in the hands of the people. People are neither uh, uh, saints in the sense of torturing themselves to death, uh, uh, you know, making uh, like uh, Scrooge, or, uh, but neither are they the prodigal son who is going to. Uh, there, there is a scale. There are all kinds of people, and we have to have a monetary system which satisfies the uh, needs and desires of everybody. And uh, this is possible to create a gold standard. Will do it now. And here is the big. Provisor, provided that the gold standard has a clearing system. And this is what practically all 
theoreticians have ignored. They just talk about gold standard in the abstract, uh, forgetting about discussing how it works. But uh, I think this is a very important question, uh, how it works and why it can work. And the reason is found in Adam Smith and the uh, famous book he wrote at the same time when the American Constitution was published in 1776, uh, The Wealth of Nations. Uh, a, a fair part of The Wealth of Nations talks about what today we call the real bills doctrine. Of course, he doesn't use that phrase because that uh, term came about as a pejorative uh, uh, name. First, a Chicago economist by the name Lloyd Mintz, who was a professor, uh, and uh, Milton Friedman was his student. And uh, Lloyd Mintz was, of course, against the Rubel's doctrine, which at that time wasn't called that, because Lloyd Mintz invented that phrase. But he made fun of it, and he said, real bills. As if, as if uh, there were no phony bills also, to make a distinction. Anyhow, uh, 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 Milton Friedman completely took over the approach of Lloyd Mintz, which was quantity theory of money, and uh, they, later on I'll talk about uh, why the two cannot be mixed. In other words, uh, you cannot have uh, quantity theory, which is valid on the one hand, or real bills doctrine, which is valid on the other. They are completely opposite. So uh, they, were com they were on the side of the quantity theory, and therefore they dismissed the real bills doctrine. And uh, by and large, the community of economists in the world uh, took over that approach. So if you don't believe in the quantity theory of money today, you disqualify yourself. You will never get a chair at a university or even allowed into a classroom to talk to students about money. You just have to believe in it. It's a, uh, it's, it's a cornerstone of the edifice of uh, economic theory, uh, which is not only obviously untrue, but it leads into disaster, as our present plight would show. So, uh, what we have now is a complete lack of understanding how the gold standard works. Now, the gold standard works because there are real bills. And the other name, the uh, name which existed before Lloyd Mintz is, uh, for a real bill is a bill of exchange, and that was invented in Italy. 
during the early Renaissance. And uh, this uh, real bill is bill in the original sense of the word. In other words, when you order something from your supplier, some good, the supplier delivers you the good and attaches a bill which shows item by item what you owe in exchange for the merchandise he delivered. So it's a piece of paper uh, and, uh, and it is a notice that you are given so much time to come up with this payment. Now, I have this uh, in, uh, if you have the, the book which we circulated, um, sold, because we couldn't give, out, give it out free, uh, what uh, or how a real bill looks like. So if you look at lecture two, don't fix the price, no? page four, it describes the format of a bill of exchange. And I will make a slight adjustment. This is a simplified version what you find here in print. And it talks about two signatures. But uh, in actual practice, a real bill worked best during history when it had three signatures. So let me explain this slight difference because it could be important and I think it is. And it's on each page. Hmm? For page four, but uh, each chapter is numbered separately. So go to lecture two, don't fix the price of gold, and then uh, following that page, it's page four. Okay? Yeah. And the real bill's doctrine and the second paragraph. A real bill is a bill of exchange drawn by the producer, etc. Okay? Now, I, I've even changed the terminology a little bit. So, the merchandise, the merchant who delivers the merchandise is called the drawer of the bill. He draws the bill, he writes it. Okay? So his name is the drawer. Now, then it continues saying that there is the acceptor of the bill. And this word acceptor I would change to drawee. The drawee is the person who is billed, and he will have to pay. He is responsible to pay for this, not on the spot, but normally 91 days time, which is the same as 13 weeks or 3 months, a quarter of the year. There's a reason for that, but uh, why 91 days? It's not uh, out of you know, rule of thumb, but it has a very good reason behind it, but I skipped that part. I just continue 
that let's change the acceptor, the word acceptor. You, you have that? Change it to drawee, okay? Because there will be an acceptor, as the, that's the third signature. These guys are going to sign the bill in order to make it capable of circulation as money. A kind of ephemeral, temporary money, which is going to expire in three months' time. Uh, so there will be a third signature, which is called the acceptor, the person who attaches his signature as a third signature. And the acceptor usually is a bank, which makes its business to uh, trade in these bills. And when maturity comes, after 91 days, then the acceptor is the paymaster. He, the bill will be presented to him. Now, his signature is there, so he cannot deny, and he will pay. That's his business. Now, how he collects is his job, and he knows, and he builds up the facilities. The point is that you have a paymaster. So you accept this bill in circulation uh, because you have these three good signatures, the drawer, the drawee, and the acceptor. And you go to the acceptor for payment at maturity. And this has worked. It's worked beautifully. Now this is a clearing system because uh, what happens is uh, merchandise in high demand goes through several hands. There's the primary producer, there is somebody who has, um, who makes the primary product into some kind of ingredient which goes into a semi-finished good and at a higher level of semi-finished good and so on. And then to the wholesale merchant, and then to the retail merchant at the other end of the uh, food chain, if I may call it that, and then ultimately the consumer buys it and he has to pay the gold coin. So you see, this is a lot of transactions and only at the very end does the gold coin surface. No gold coin. I mean, it would be crazy for the producer charging another producer uh, in gold coins for the semi-finished merchandise. This, just, uh, this would be extremely wasteful and it wouldn't even work because of course you would have to have these gold coins in existence and, uh, and uh, they are, they aren't, they aren't. So because of this instrument, the real bill, the uh, uh, gold coin and the uh, gold supply is inelastic. You know, in certain times of the year there is need for more means of payments, especially at Christmas time, for example. But in January after Christmas it collapses the demand for 
means of payments. And there is no way to make the gold supply or the gold coin uh, supply so elastic to adjust to these variations of the demand uh, for them. So you need a, an elastic, a highly elastic, but still safe way of deputizing <coughs> for gold coins. And that is what the real bill is. It's a, an instrument which uh, is maturing into gold at the end of its life, which is 91 days. And this is uh, very important to understand. So that's how a real bill looks like. It looks like a, a check, okay? But it's important to have a clear back because the endorsement will have to uh, be shown on the back. So there is a date, and it says that what goods have been delivered, describe quantity, quality, location, uh, if it's being shipped overseas, then the name of the boat and the insurance company, and you have to attach insurance documents to it. So all this is described. And, there, and then it continues the sum. And then continues to say at what date it is payable. So payable. Now it doesn't have to be 91 days, but it has to be at not no longer than 91. So you know you could make it payable in 60 days, but you cannot make it payable in 92 days. Okay, or 100 days, or whatever. And uh, where it's payable, in the name of the bank, or the acceptance house, okay, which is going to pay on the date of maturity. And then the drawer. signs the bill, and that's the merchandise, merchant, normally the retail merchant, could be the wholesale merchant. And then the drawee signs to and normally it could be the retail merchant, could be the uh, consumer, and could be another producer. In the case, a semi-finished good is passed on to another producer who will further do further work on it to make it marketable. So 
depending on the situation, the drawing could be one of those. And then the acceptor. So this, these two are connected because when it says where it's payable, then it is the responsibility of the acceptor, and therefore uh, the signature of the acceptor increases greatly the marketability of this instrument because it's not a sky in a pie in the sky but it is saying explicitly where and who will be responsible for the ultimate payment. Now, when this bill is complete, bill of exchange, then the interesting thing is that it changes its quality. It's a metamorphosis, like the uh, the uh, worm becomes a butterfly, you know, this, without the third signature, it's like uh, a worm. But with the third signature, it becomes a butterfly, it can fly. Because, because uh, whoever gets this bill, suppose it's, a, it's another producer. He got the semi-finished merchandise and the bill with it and he, oh yeah, he has to say, I accept. And usually it's across the face of the bill. I accept. And this is the drawee who says, I accept. So he has accepted the bill and he obliges himself to pay the sum before that date. Okay. Now, he accepted it, and then he is in the business of still working on this to pass it on to the next, because this is still just a semi-finished merchandise. And in doing further work on this, he has to have other uh, factors to put in to make it ready for the next guy. And therefore, he will have to have funds. What will he do? Well, he has this bill. It's not mature, but it's, it has the three good signatures on it. It has been properly accepted and so on. So he goes to his supplier and offers this bill to him in payment. And the guy. Sorry. Sorry. Give me a minute to change the yeah, sure. And that's the beautiful thing, and that's what many people refuse to understand, that this is such, an, such a powerful instrument 
that the supplier will accept this as if it was a gold coin. It's not. But it's maturing into a gold coin because they both realize that at the end of the food chain, the uh, ultimate consumer is waiting and he is ready to pay gold for it. Because the article in question is in very high demand. So nobody doubts the fact that this is in real demand. So the supplier will accept this and what happens is that they turn the bill around and this is the back of the same bill, the other side. And uh, the, the guy who is paying with it and endorses it. He attaches a new, a fourth signature. Okay? A fourth signature. And by this signature, he signifies that he transfers his rights to collect as maturity to whoever his supplier was, whoever accepted the bill. Okay? Now, of course, there are little technical problems that the amount won't match because this is for a definite amount and uh, it's probably not the same as the amount he owes to his supplier. And therefore, there's a little technical problem there. But this, we don't have to waste time on this because the difference could be make up, made up in cash, or uh, you can put two maturing real bills together, or something. So let's, or, or there are discount houses. Let's not uh, distract ourselves over discussing these technical details. The important thing is that this bill is a butterfly. It can fly on its own wings and under its own steam. You don't need government, you don't need uh, legal tender protect protection and all this junk. You have an instrument which is very powerful as long as it's within maturity. And all these names are known and respected. They say, the, the people who sign this. And then it goes on. The next guy who is working on this semi-finished product has his own suppliers. So when time comes and he has to pay for his supply, then he will uh, pay with the same bill. So there will be a fifth signature. The same way, you know, and there might be lots of other signatures. Because this is really circulating money among the traders, among the producers, and wholesales, and retail level, and uh, as I say, at maturity, the ultimate consumer 
who is buying it, not because he wants to sell it further to somebody else, but he is the consumer. He is paying with a gold coin. Now, this will collapse the telescope. You see, the one gold coin goes back and repays all the obligations. These are obligations, every one of them. But the one single gold coin can liquidate all these. And again, there's a technical problem that the amounts don't match because these, when you collapse that telescope, uh, you know, everybody will get a cut, including the labor cost, the profit, and the cost of uh, new raw material which goes into the product at various stages. But that's a technical problem which can be discussed separately. That, that's not the, this is not the reason why the real goods doctrine is attacked. That, because everybody knows these technical problems are negligible. The real goods doctrine is attacked for another reason. Because the detractors of the real goods doctrine say that this is creating credit out of the thin air. Well, ladies and gentlemen, it's not. It's not thin air. There is a real uh, merchandise, which is not ready yet for consumption because this and that and that and that has to be fixed on it, which will take cost, labor, etc., you know. Um, and uh, therefore, it takes time and effort and maybe in overseas shipping or air freight, what have you, which has to go into this before it's ready for the market. So it's not creating credit out of nothing, because there is a real merchandise in real demand, which is going to be paid for in real gold coin, which can liquidate all the obligations throughout the food chain. I, I just keep saying food chain. Well, uh, may not be appropriate, but I think uh, you all understand what I mean. So there it is. The real bill is a real bill. And the credit involved is a real credit. It's also called self-liquidating credit. Now, a mortgage is not self-liquidating. You buy a house and finance the purchase of the house with a mortgage. And then you live in the house for 30 years by the time the mortgage is paid for. So it's not self-liquidating because if you live in a house, you add nothing to it. If anything, you diminish its value because of wear and tear and getting out of fashion and needing uh, repair in the roof and uh, flooding the basement and all that. But the mortgage is another credit instrument. Credit but not self-liquidating. A real bill, on the other hand, is self-liquidating because 
as it is circulating, there is an end to the food chain and it's being paid uh, off by the ultimate consumer who wants this underlying merchandise badly and he's ready to pay and this was, a, uh, ex uh, this was assumed all along that there is somebody waiting at the end ready to pay the gold coin for it. You see, only merchandise in the highest demand will qualify for real bill financing. And because of that, it's a credit which is self-liquidating. And this is very important. By the way, self-liquidating credit was a term perfectly acceptable and being used widely in the literature a uh, hundred years ago. The books on money and uh, uh, banking and financing, all that, used the term self-liquidating almost on every page. Today, you buy these books on money and credit and, and you won't find the word self-liquidating credit in the index, nor will it you will find it inside of the book. This is a term which has been banned. I'm not saying that the police will <coughs> get after you if you uh, publish something and you put the word self-liquidating. At least the police didn't come after me to pick me up. <laughs> but there are others, more subtle ways of <coughs> making sure that you will not use the word. Because if you do, then you will not be able to, to uh, distribute your books through the normal channels of distribution. I, I could, didn't even try because I knew that I won't find a publisher who would, you know, or, or, or if you write a book and give the title Self-Liquidating Credit. It's a wonderful topic for a book and I could write a book on that, very convincing, but it's foolish to look for a publisher. They won't touch it with a ten-foot pole. They won't. If you don't believe me, try it and you'll find out. So, there it is. This is just one example of the many. Because I, there, I can give you other examples that certain words are taboo. You must not use them if you want to survive in this uh, fiat money world. You just must not use it. Now, time is... Uh, short, and uh, I have lots more to say, so I uh, call your attention to the same page, page four, there is a, a nice uh, quotation from a former president of the United States in uh, writing in 1829, so that's more than 180 years ago. Uh, John Quincy Adams said that all the perplexities, confusion and distress in America arise 
not from the defects in the Constitution or Confederation, not from want of honor or virtue, so much as from downright ignorance of the nature of coin, credit, and circulation. The three C's I call them, and I added the third C, so there are four C's. Coin, credit, circulation, and clearing, which is very important because it is not just coin which should be acceptable, but also real bills. And in order for a real bill to be valid, you, you must have a clearinghouse. And in fact, the real bill system is the clearinghouse of the gold standard. If you grab the real bill and throw it into the waste paper basket and make a law that people are not allowed to write and accept and trade in real bills, then you have removed the clearinghouse of the gold standard. And the clearinghouse of the gold standard is a vital organ, just like the heart or the kidney or the liver or what have to Lung are vital organs of the human body. If you remove the heart, forget it. Life is gone. The same, maybe uh, not immediately, but certainly in a short space of time, the body will die. And exactly the same is true of the gold standard. You remove the clearinghouse, the real circulation, then you have condemned that uh, gold standard to death. Whether it's immediate or within a short space of time uh, is immaterial, but it's at the end of the life. Now this is what happened, ladies and gentlemen, let me remind you, in, uh, 19, in the 1930s. Started in Britain in 1931, 1933 in the United States, and by 1935, the countries which wanted to carry on, in spite of the big defects, uh, Britain, United States, uh, France, Switzerland, uh, Belgium, a number of other countries in Europe, wanted to carry on in the face of all odds. <clears throat> with the gold standard. They did, did not examine that it won't work because the clearinghouse has been destroyed. So in 1935 they all threw in the towel, finished, it's just not possible. So in other words, the gold standard died, but not a natural death, it was killed by saboteurs who destroyed the real bill circulation which was uh, the prop. It supported the thing. So this is something important to keep in mind. <coughs> now, there is a quotation which I would like to offer for your kind attention, starting on page 7. 
The question is why gold? And this is uh, due to Benjamin M. Anderson, the very uh, famous and very good monetary scientist uh, in the United States, died in 1949. And he had a book which had a complicated title, something that the welfare uh, provided by the monetary system or something like that. Uh, welfare has nothing to do with the welfare state. It's just the original meaning of the word that in order to have human welfare in society at our level of progress, which is uh, uh, very high and our society is very complex and depends on so many other things. Uh, the monetary system, and so he just used the word welfare in this sense. And he has a chapter on gold, or and, and the references to gold are scattered all over the books. It's very uh, well written and very good and very convincing. And he was a very keen observer of the scene. Uh, and uh, he explains in this uh, excerpt, which I included here, why gold is necessary. And he says, among other things, that uh, why gold? Gold is needed as the essential agent for the litmus test of good faith in financial dealings, gold needs no endorsement. It can be tested with acids and scales. The scales for the quantity, the acid for the quality. But it can be tested. If you don't trust the government which stamped it, which struck it, the gold coin, then you can just test it with your acids and scales. The recipient of gold does not have to trust the government stamp on it if he does not trust the government that has stamped it. No act of faith is called for when gold is used in payments, and no compulsion is required. Huh? No legal... By the way, uh, if you hear anybody saying the gold coin has legal tender, this is an oxymoron, it's a contradiction in terms. Gold coin does not need legal tender protection. There has never been a case in all history that a creditor refused the gold coin in settlement of debt. Whereas any number of cases that they refuse paper money, or, you know, they could only be forced to accept paper money under the threat of the law that, you know. Uh, so, Gold is highly unpopular with banks and governments. Why? Because gold is a most unimaginative taskmaster. It demands that not only men, but also governments 
and banks be honest. Now the law requires that people be honest, right? If you are not honest, you can be taken to court and jailed. But the law does not require that governments be honest, or banks be honest. But gold does, and that's why we need gold. It demands that banks keep their demand liabilities safely within the limits of their quick assets. It demands that governments create no debts without seeing how it can be paid. If a country has a government and banks that will do these things, gold would, will stay with them and will come to them from other countries. But when a country's government creates that light-heartedly, when its central bank makes the rate of interest artificially low, zero in the case of the Federal Reserve right now, in buying government securities to feed the country's money market, when it permits an expansion of credit that goes into slow and illiquid assets, then gold grows nervous. Mobile capital of all kinds grows nervous. There occurs a flight of capital out of the country. Foreigners withdraw their funds from it and its own citizens send their liquid as funds abroad for safety. When sub suspension of gold payments eventually comes, speculators in the foreign exchange market treat paper currency most disrespectfully. They will sell it short. They will buy it only at a discount. The amount of discount is governed primarily by the expectation as to whether and when the government and the central bank will reverse its unsound policy and work back to orthodoxy and monetary rectitude. Can we have irredeemable currency in a free country with free markets? Paper money is not merely a promissory note, of course, it is also legal tender, coercion. The government will moreover receive it as tax collector. Then there are various elements of patriotic support from a loyal citizenry for the paper. But beyond that, irredeemable currency embodies coercion. Legal tender, as the word is understood today, is extortion. It requires producers to give up real goods and real services in exchange for irredeemable promises of uncertain value. Promises which the issuer has neither the intention nor the means to keep, all the same, the prestige of a great government and a long-established government can go far 
in upholding the value of its paper money even if the rational foundation from the value of paper redeemability into gold has been overthrown. Well, I could go on, but I don't want to take away time from the break. So after the break, in 30 minutes, we continue and open the floor for discussion. Thank you very much. <laughs>